Today is, is the fourth Sunday of this season called Advent, which is a traditional season of preparing to celebrate and remember the coming of Jesus as a child into the world. And um, we've been journeying through Advent through this framework of when God said yes. And uh, if you guys were around a few weeks ago, I, I kind of mentioned that that title comes from the, the Bible, this letter that a guy named Paul, a church leader, writes to a church in Greece. And uh, in the letter, he is talking about Jesus, and he makes this beautiful statement about Jesus. He says, in Jesus Christ, it is always yes. All of God's promises have their yes in Jesus uh, and I thought that language was always so beautiful. That statement always just jumped out at me off the page of whatever God promises us, uh, the answer is yes in Jesus, right? And so we've been looking at the different weeks of Advent and uh, different traditions uh, kind of theme the weeks differently. We've gone with uh, the weeks, uh, the first week of hope and then the, the, the week of 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 love. And then last week, Pastor Mark taught us about joy. And today we're going to talk about peace. And what does it mean that God says yes to all of those things? And let me just uh, be very, very clear that, that God, uh, I believe, is a God who affirms peace. He says yes to peace. That is his desired state for humanity, for us, for the world. It is his desired state. And so what does it mean that through Jesus, God says yes to that on such a deep level? The very existence of Jesus on earth is a yes to that. Does God affirm peace? Yes, look at Jesus. And so that's what we're gonna do today. Um, but we're gonna do that by, I wanna kind of tell you a, a story and, and show you some pictures. Um, 2014 was... Uh, my wife and I, uh, it was our 20th, uh, 20th anniversary. And at the time, my, worf, uh, my wife actually worked two, jo two jobs. One of them was in consulting here. She worked for a nonprofit. Um, and the point being was we wanted to do something special for our 20th anniversary. And because she had two jobs and we had the income, we could save up enough money. And we took our whole family, took our kids, our two kids, and we went to London and we went to Paris. I was like, sort of, man, we don't know if we'll ever get to do this again, so let's just do it. Um, and so we were there in March, and we went to London first, and uh, I don't know, it was day two or something, we went to the Tower of London. And they were preparing at the time for an art installation. The installation actually didn't begin until, until July, but uh, they were preparing for it when we were there. I don't know if you guys realize this, but uh, from 2014 to just recently, a couple, uh, last month, uh, it has been the 100th anniversary of World War I. Okay, and, and over here, that's sort of a distant memory. But in Europe, uh, it's another thing entirely. And, and in a few minutes, I'll, I'll show you why. But so this is what the art installation was about. It was about remembering World War I. So from July through November, November of 2014, um, there was a, uh, an artist named Paul Cummins and he designed an art installation and he titled it Blood Swept Land and Seas of Red. And the title came from a fragment of a letter that a World War I British soldier, they had found it on his body. It was, it was a letter that he had written to home and it functioned as his last will and testament. And he wrote this fragment of a poem of what it was like to be in World War I. 
and that phrase that it was a blood-swept land and seas of red. And, uh, and so this artist designed and envisioned this installation. I'm just going to show you what it looked like. This is the Tower of London. If you've ever been there, this is where the moat, sort of an old moat would have been. These are ceramic uh, poppies. And so over the months, they began to install them. And at first, they kind of like looked like they were coming out of the window. And they began to fill up this whole grassy area. And then it eventually looked like this. There are 800, over 880,000 of those ceramic poppies. One for every single British and colonial British armed forces life that was lost in World War I. 880,000 casualties. That's why it was a big deal. Over here, a little bit distant from that, but there, it was their reality. Now, um, in November of 1918, they signed the armistice. They ended uh, the, 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 the shooting part of the war. And it took months to hammer out uh, the treaty. Anybody remember what the treaty was? It was a treaty of Versailles. So in uh, 1919, the spring, uh, the, the world gets together and they sign the treaty of Versailles. This is what uh, the actual document looked like, the English copy looked like. And I want to start that way because the, the Treaty of Versailles and what happens with the Treaty of Versailles says something really, really powerful about uh, our understanding of peace as human beings and God's understanding of peace, especially as it's found in the Bible. And I would just say it this way, uh, we have, in general, a very inadequate understanding of what the Bible means by peace. And it's much more than the absence of conflict. You see, like, if most of, if I was to poll most of you guys, I'm like, what does peace look like? You know, you got, well, listen, it looks like the absence of conflict. The Treaty of Versailles was signed as a peace treaty. And there was an absence of conflict when it happened. But there was something more that was going on, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, but let me, let me start it this way. If you're a parent, okay, and if you have multiple children, you know the difference between an absence of conflict and true peace, okay? Like, I don't know, again, if you're a parent, you ever have those moments in your house where like, you know, you've got some kids and, and they're off in another room and, and all of a sudden, like you may be sitting around watching TV or just hanging out and all of a sudden you hear silence. As a parent, I learned that that silence is actually when I need to get really nervous. Because it was usually a prequel to some kind of bigger disaster. But there's, there's a desire to say, listen, if I don't hear the ruckus, that means peace. But it does not, right? We know this as parents. We've learned it. Just because you don't hear the battle does not mean the battle is going, not going on or that it's not going to escalate, okay? Now, back to the Treaty of Versailles in World War I. You see, the, 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 the world powers, the allied powers, you know, France and, and Great Britain and America uh, and, and, and Russia, well, the Russia got, Russian got, Russia got out of it, but basically France 
and England and America, they, they beat Germany in the battle. And then essentially, I had this image of like, now Germany's on the ground and they have their foot on Germany's neck. And so they're going to sign a peace treaty. And so what do you do when your enemy's down? And you get to dictate the terms of the peace. And so what Great Britain and France and America did is they took it to Germany. So they did a couple things to the Germans. They said, first of all, you, uh, in this Treaty of Versailles that you will sign, Germany will take sole responsibility for World War I. Germany will take 100% credit for World War I, which was false. If you know anything about world politics, you know it's complex. But they made the Germans say it was all our fault. And then they said, not only is it your fault, but you have to pay, because it's your fault, you have to pay reparations to the rest of the world. So they gave Germany, basically gave them a bill for World War I. Uh, to the tune of modern dollars, it would be about $440 billion. Here you go, Germany. It was your fault. Pay for it. And then they put caps on, on of peace. And shalom is much more than the absence of conflict. Shalom is much more about what's there not what's not there. So shalom in the Bible, it means security. It means wholeness. It means contentment. It means health. It means happiness. It's a holistic sense of everything is okay in the world. It's not what's missing. It's what's there. So first of all, uh, again, like so to say, the biblical understanding is not the absence of conflict, but it's also the presence of shalom. And I think like, I, to me, this was profound. It's not what you take away from a conflict in, in the Bible for peace. It's what you bring to it. You have to make things happen. You have to bring about security, bring about wholeness, bring about contentment to produce a biblical vision of peace. Not just take revenge or declare victory. The Bible, I've shared this before. Uh, if you guys, the, the, the Hebrew scriptures uh, in particular, the Bible's written in Hebrew. Um, it's a very word poor language. So in the Bible, words like shalom carry sometimes multiple meanings. They do multiple work. And uh, I stumbled across this this week. Like, so shalom is this beautiful word that means peace. But do you know what shalom also is? Shalom is an architectural term. So in the Bible, if a building is done, that building is shalom. If a wall that is constructed is complete and it's right and it's done well, that wall is shalom. And in particularly, it's used to indicate complex structures. So in other words, uh, if you just take a bunch of rocks and pile them in any form or fashion, that pile is not going to be shalom. It's not complex enough. But a building or a wall that is, is crafted out of stone by somebody who knows what they're doing, that's shalom. Which tells me that peace and cultivating peace from a biblical point of view is going to be complex. 
You see, sometimes we want it to be simple. Who was right? Who was wrong? I've lived long enough to know that here, I'll just tell you, I got enough gray hairs on my head that I can, I can tell you this. In a relational conflict, you know who was right and who was wrong? You both were. Life is too complex. It cannot be simplified to say, I was right, you were wrong. You were right, I was wrong. Shalom means it was complex. We have to build something to make it right. And we can't just take away the conflict. We have to bring something new to what was there before. Anybody understand what I'm talking about? So, it goes without saying that uh, with this word shalom in the Bible, the people that can do shalom from an architectural point of view are craftsmen and experts. You can't expect sort of normal everyday people to shalom a building into existence. I remember watching a video once of, a, of an artist and he did these big installations, kind of like what we saw at the beginning, but he did an art installation uh, that involved just a stone wall that just ran for hundreds and hundreds of yards. And they showed the craftsmen constructing this stone wall. And you would think, oh, it's a stone wall. You just get people to pile stones on top of each other. No, these guys had been handed down a tradition of how you craft a stone wall. And they would sit there with these stones. They beat them against each other, kind of creating edges. And then they would look at a stone and they'd find a place on the wall. No masonry, by the way. And they would just lay the stone in the perfect space so that at the end, with no masonry, no cement whatsoever, this wall is just standing and it's level with just freestanding rocks. They knew how to shalom a wall because they were expert craftsmen. So if you go to make peace from a biblical point of view, you ought to be a little bit nervous because it's complex and you need typically help to do it. There's this beautiful sentence, a couple sentences in the New Testament written by James, Jesus' brother in chapter three. He's writing to this church in Jerusalem and he, James says, listen, what about this wisdom from above? And remember in the Bible, wisdom is like, how do you live a good life? What is this good life from above? And he says, first of all, it's pure. And then what? Peaceful. And then it's gentle and it's obedient and filled with mercy and good actions, fair and genuine. And this, I love this. This is so beautiful to me. Those who make shalom sow the seeds of justice by their peaceful acts. Now think about what you think of when you think of the word justice. Most of us would say, listen, the seeds of justice are usually sowed by, I don't know, uh, you know, what I'm going to get in the world. I'm going to show you how you were wrong. That's justice to the world. This scripture says, no, the seeds of justice are sowed by shalom acts. Seeking contentment for the other person. Seeking well-being for the other person. Biblical peace is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence and construction of shalom. And before, uh, before we sort of get to the table, I, I really had this question impressed on my heart this week and I just wanted to share it with you because maybe, maybe it's just me. But I, the first question I asked myself when I started thinking about this, ser this uh, sermon was, does Jesus even want peace for us? 
Did Jesus really want that for us? Because if you know your gospels, you know that Jesus walks around saying things like, hey, listen, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring division, a sword. And I'm like, thanks, Jesus. I had to preach on this this week. Jesus says, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Oh, whoa, wait a minute. So I, I know the Bible well enough that I would just, I would speak to this and I would first of all say, listen, every time Jesus says something like this, he's actually making a very specific point, typically about where people have drawn the lines about who gets to be in the God club and who is on the outs. And then when you take that and then you measure it up against all these other things about Jesus and peace, you come to the conclusion that yes, Jesus does want us to be peace because you see things in the Bible, just a short list. Jesus is constantly telling people, listen, go in peace. Particularly in Luke's gospel, particularly in John's gospel. He, he interacts with somebody, he heals them and he says, go in peace. Jesus says in his most central sermon, Matthew 5, he says, blessed are the shalom makers. Blessed are the people who craft shalom. He is called the Prince of Peace in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. And when he's born, a bunch of angels, God's messengers, declare to people that now there is peace on earth and goodwill towards humanity. So I say on the balance of it, yeah, Jesus wants peace for us. Yes, he is the yes to God's question of peace. But then this guy, Paul, he gives the most profound statement of all to a letter to another church in a place called Ephesus. And he just says, Christ is our peace. Christ is our shalom. So it's not that Jesus just says, it's a good idea. It's not that Jesus just says, go do it. Jesus says, I am it. And let me say it this way to the degree that you want to create biblical shalom between you and another person or even you inside your soul, you know who better be there? Sunday school answer. If the Bible says Jesus is our shalom, then he has to be involved in any shalom-making efforts. And you know how we said, listen, in the Bible, shalom, uh, walls get constructed by expert craftsmen. Uh, if Jesus is the shalom, then he's the craftsman. Don't leave the craftsman out of your shalom efforts. Because you're only going to know how to do it so well. But bringing Jesus into that, you become an apprentice to him. Jesus, you're the expert craftsman. I need shalom. I have this discord between um, you know, my, my husband, my wife, my father, my son, my daughter, my coworker, my neighbor. I have, I have a lack of shalom between me and an organization. I have, I have a lack of shalom inside myself. And where am I gonna go? Jesus is the expert shalom maker and it starts with him. And God has given him to us for that reason. He is the expert. Just bounce back to the beginning of the difference between a truce, 
difference between absence of conflict and true peace. What do we say? It involves both sides. It's relational. And it's not about revenge. Because a lot of us sit there and we go, for myself, if, if I invite Jesus into this, Jesus, Jesus, what if he knows everything?